This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato, broadcasting today from WFPL Studios in uh, Louisville Public Media, right here in Louisville, Kentucky. Later in the hour, we're going to explore the uh, brainy antics of a common neighbor for many of us, crows. But first, the last Apollo mission to the moon happened nearly, what, half a century ago, and ever since, we've been talking about going back. So what would it take not to just land on the moon this time, and explore it, but to really live and work there to build a lunar city. My next guest has thought all about this. In his new book, Artemis, Andy Weir maps out a blueprint for what a working city would look like, 240,000 miles from Earth. And he applies that same type of meticulous research and geeky engineering he used in his last book, The Martian, to figure out how you would do things like smelt aluminum on the moon, build an economy, or... Most importantly, make drinkable beer. Andy Weir is here to break down what uh, what it takes to hack it on the moon. Welcome back to Science Friday. Hey, thanks for having me. Our number, 844-724-8255. Let's talk about this, Andy. Is, is, is it not lunacy to talk about a lunar city? <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not laughing, but I do see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, I'm so <laughs> so transparent. <laughs> well, tell tell, tell um, us why. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, tell us about the city and and the meticulous way you 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 laid out an incredible colony on the moon there. Well, thanks. Um, well, the first thing I needed was I wanted. Well, I set out with the goal of saying like, okay, I want to write a story that takes place in a city on the moon. And the first thing I did had to do was come up with why is there a city on the moon? A city doesn't exist without some economic reason. So step one was the economy. So mm. the conceit of Artemis is that the price to low Earth orbit has been driven down far enough that middle class people can afford to get into space. And I actually I wrote a whole paper on that. And you can find that at Business Insider if you want to see it. Um, but I came up with some numbers on how much it would cost in in a in a in the future to send stuff to the moon and it becomes worthwhile to have a tourist economy. So then I said like, all right, now I'm going to, now we can uh, make a, a city on the moon that has a tourism base. And so I kind of based the city off of the economics of, uh, of like Caribbean resort towns and stuff. Artemis is very close to the Apollo 11 landing site. That's mm -hmm. a major tourist draw, that sort of stuff. Uh, then that that was the quick part. Then I spent about a year working out all the science. <laughs> uh, so you became a lunar expert. What was the hardest thing? What was the hardest calculation you had to make or learn about? Well, uh, well, um, basically, uh, I had to learn a, a lot about smelting. And um, so basically the moon, the lunar highlands area, that's that's the part that's bumpy as opposed to the smooth part. The lunar highlands, about 85% of the rocks just laying out on the surface are a mineral called anorthite. And anorthite is made of aluminum, silicon, calcium, and oxygen. And if you smelt that, which means you, you break it apart into its component um, elements, you end up with, well, aluminum, calcium, silicon, and oxygen. And so this gives you aluminum to build your moon city and oxygen to fill it. And so that's really astounding that the moon, it's, and this is like 85% of the rocks on the surface. Um, in the highlands. And so it's like the moon is just saying, come on, colonize me. I dare you. It, the moon is made of moon bases with some assembly required. But the most complicated part for me was figuring out, okay, how am I going to smelt these rocks, right? right. 
okay, well, I need a smelting facility. Okay, how do you smelt anorthite? Well, a really good way would be to use a process called the FFC Cambridge process, which is a chemical um, deoxidization process that was actually invented just in the 1990s. So it's pretty new. And then I'm like, okay, well, how much energy would it take? Oh my gosh, so much energy. <laughs> so it made it clear that it couldn't be powered by a solar farm. I'd need to have reactors on there. And it's just that sort of cascade of like discovery of what do I need? Okay, what do I need to get what I need? What do I need to get what I need to get what I need? And so on. And that uh, led to me basically designing the whole city before I ever came up with a plot or characters for it. <laughs> but but in doing this whole thing, you say, as you say, you said to yourself, why aren't we going back? It's, it's quite possible to do this. Well, um, it's not possible to do this in the real world just yet. I mean, I can answer the reason why yeah. we're going back. There's no money to be made. Um, we had, you know, the Apollo mission was, the Apollo program was really to show that we could and to prove that we could. And it's it's almost like building the pyramids kind of thing. It's like, yeah. hey, we did this. It's amazing. We're proud of it. And we will always be proud of it. It's something that in 100 years, Americans will still be like, we did that. But uh, in terms of a colony, in terms of people moving there, emigrating there, making and building their lives there, well, there has to be an economic reason for that. And you're not going to get an economic reason until there can be regular transport to and from the moon at a price that middle class people can afford. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. In, in your last book, The Martian, you had the main character engineer his way through the plot. Uh, well, what did you learn from writing that book on the technical side? How did you how did you set up building the world in, in Artemis? What what kind of thing you know? What did you learn from that? Well, um, I made a few mistakes in the Martian, scientific mistakes. And uh, so I actually put even more effort into being scientifically accurate in Artemis. Um, so, for instance, uh, well, some were mistakes, some were just kind of uh, I, things I didn't want to deal with. <laughs> so, for instance, in the Martian, I said, oh, hab canvas is this kind of magical material that blocks radiation. I said, oh, it's a radiation blocking material. Well, there is no such thing that's like a centimeter thick that'll stop the the radiation that, that'll bombard you when you're outside of Earth's atmosphere and magnetic field. And so for Artemis, I actually did account for it. The hulls of the city are, it's basically a double-hulled system of six centimeters of aluminum, a meter of crushed lunar rock, basically sand, and then another six centimeters of aluminum. So people inside the city get a... It reduces the radiation exposure to roughly mm. the same as what you get on the surface of Earth, or maybe even less. Hmm. In Artemis, uh, you know, as opposed to the Martian, it's not NASA or a space agency that's running the place. It's it's Kenya, a country. Yeah, and, it's actually. Yeah, that's it's, interesting. Well, I thought it's actually, that you chose that. Yeah. Well, um, so I I firmly believe that we've kind of reached the point in uh, in in the real world in uh, private spaceflight or commercial spaceflight, and and I've heard this from multiple sources from people working on these things that the main impediment to private space ventures like little satellites, little things like that, is no longer technology. It's now policy. Um, our our space policy, the things that our government makes you do in order to get permission to put something into space is now what's really holding people back. So what I did was I created this fictional uh, scenario where the government of Kenya seizes on that as an opportunity to draw the entire global space industry into Kenya. Um, so first off, they just make 
all of their policies super duper friendly and non-intrusive to the space industry. They make a bunch of special laws. Hey, you can go ahead and do union busting. You know, this isn't like a nice thing. They 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 wanted to bring the you know to bring the to bring the industry in, and they also have a natural resource that very few countries have in that they're on the equator and that they're on the east coast of their of their continent. So this means that first off, you can launch from the equator itself which means the Earth's natural rotation gives you about one-sixteenth of the total velocity you're, you're going to need to get into orbit, which is not negligible. That saves you a lot of fuel. And then second off, you, you always launch east, so that means you're launching out over the ocean, so there's no safety concerns. Um, so Kenya is a, is a, is a real, real good location to put a, a launch complex. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that... Um in setting up uh, your town and uh, on Artemis, a series of connected pressurized bubbles. Uh, tell us why you why you decided on that. Well, um, each bubble is well. The first bubble that they built is a hundred meters across in, in diameter, and uh, all the others are two hundred meters in diameter. And they they both have that double. They all have that double hold system that I described earlier, and they're spheres which are half underground. So if you look at Artemis from the outside, it looks exactly like your 1950s novels told you it should look. Right. Um, you know, a bunch of apparent domes on the landscape. But there's as much underground as above ground. Now, the reason to do that is spheres are the most efficient shape for holding in atmospheric pressure. Um, and the reason they're partitioned is so that you can move people around if there's a breach. So there is a double-hold system. So both holes would have to to breach in order for air to leak out, but there's no need to take unnecessary risks. So let's say you're in, um, in, in one bubble and one of the holes has a problem in it and it breaches. The other hole is still holding in the air just fine, but you calmly evacuate everyone out of that bubble into, into the other bubbles, seal off the problem bubble, repair the hole, then bring everyone back in. So you have this, it's a very, very safe system for ensuring that there's never a sudden decompression that kills. I mean, there's 2,000 people living in that city. You you don't want to take the risk of a disaster of that magnitude. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, the, the, the pressure doesn't have to be totally as, as a high a pressure as we have on the surface of the Earth, you point out. Right. Um, the pressure in Artemis is actually about 20% of the pressure at Earth's sea level. And the reason for that is that the air is all pure oxygen. Um, now, a lot of people think pure oxygen and immediately think Apollo 1 disaster, or everything's flammable. Well, that's not yeah. the case. Because the air pressure is lower, the, the partial pressure, meaning basically the density of oxygen atoms flying around, is the same as it is on the surface of Earth. So if you set something on fire in Artemis, it would burn at the same speed as something would at sea level on Earth. So why go to the trouble of doing this, you know, kind of like get rid of everything that's not oxygen in the air? Because it reduces the total pressure of the city and, and makes the engineering constraints on those bubbles easier. They only have to hold in one-fifth of the pressure. And this is, by the way, exactly what the Apollo missions did. Um, the command module, the lunar module, they were, they were um, about 20% of Earth's atmosphere of pure oxygen because it made the engineering easier, simpler, and more safe. Well, we're going to come back and uh, talk lots more uh, with Andy Weir about uh, his new book, Artemis. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a really interesting read if you want to read something that's 
That's kind of cool. It's, uh, you can also talk to us about it, 844-724-8255. Also, that's 844-SCI-TALK. And also tweet us, at SciFry. We're going to take a break, and we continue talking with Andy Weir about uh, Artemis and how to uh, hack living on the moon. If you have questions about lunar travel, now's the time to ask. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. My hour, my hour, my guest this hour is Andy Weir. You know him as author of The Martian, and we're talking about his latest book called Artemis. And uh, one of the questions I had in reading your book, and I'm, you know, it's quite obvious that even a hundred years from now, the food hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> no, space. it sure hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why is that? <laughs> Well, um, while it is much cheaper uh, in the setting of Artemis to get stuff to the moon, um, it is not un- it is not free, and uh, transporting freight uh, transporting freight to the moon is expensive. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll spare you ten pages of economic analysis and math. It turns out to be about a uh, hundred and sixty dollars in twenty fifteen dollars to put one kilogram onto the surface of the moon. So that means if you want to eat nice, tasty food that was made on Earth, like, you know, steaks or something like that, it's going to end up costing quite a lot of money. So most people in Artemis, bear in mind, it's a tourist-based economy. So Mm -hmm. there's the nice, glitzy hotels and casinos area, and then the more modest and austere uh, places where the the residents who live and work there uh, are. And they can't afford that sort of thing. So what they end up eating is, uh, well, it's chlorella algae. But they all call it gunk. <laughs> and uh, it, algae is actually really cool in, in terms of, like, potential space nutrition because a lot of it can be grown in a very, very small area in a very, very quick amount of time, a very small amount of time. So you can have vats that are just basically um, algae farms cranking this stuff out. And also, based on the inputs that you give it, the amount of light, the frequencies of light, and the nutrients that are in the, in the bath to start with, mm-hmm. the algae will either generate more protein or more sugars. So you can really fine-tune the nutritional value of it. So it's actually nutritionally extremely good for you, but it tastes awful. <laughs> and I've had some. Yeah. Um, I was ambushed. Yes, I was ambushed by this. Um, somebody in, in an interview a few days ago, someone said like, oh, well, we brought you some chlorella algae, some dried chlorella algae here. We'll just mix up some water. There's your gunk. Give us a taste. And I can I can tell you uh, it's awful. It's um, it, it tastes like so you take the taste of seaweed. I don't know if you if you eat sushi, but um, you take the taste of seaweed and, and then magnify it by about a thousand and then give it an aftertaste that basically never goes away. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's not a great taste. However, also within the, within the context of Artemis, um, what you do if you're poor is you, is you buy gunk locally, but you also buy imported from Earth extracts, like mm. so flavor extracts that you mix with the gunk to make it taste uh, palatable, although it still doesn't taste that great. Well, I'm glad you, you didn't say it tastes like chicken or else we'd be... We'd be done here. Let's go to the phones. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the phones now. Let's let's go to uh, Kate in New Smyrna, Florida. Hi, Kate. Hi. Hi there. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Go ahead. I'm really excited to hear this on my way home from work. I'm a writer here in Florida, and my father, Jim Davis, was one of the um, first American rocket scientists in Huntsville and a chief designer on Apollo. Uh, one of the founders of the shuttle program, and I think he would be just 
thrilled to death with Dee's books. Um, I really enjoyed oh, The Martian. Oh, well, thank you. And he was actually the original steely-eyed missile man that uh, comes from his uh, experience with the Apollo 13 disaster, and he led the team that uh, designed the filter. And so I'm just thrilled with the book. That's and awesome. excited to read this, this next one, and I think my father would just love this. Well, thank you, Kate, for calling. Well, thanks. You can't get a better recommendation than that, Andy. Yeah, no, that's that's. Fantastic! I love to hear that sort of thing. Let's let, let's talk, let's talk also about the stuff that goes on in the moon. In the, in the book, I mean, you have set up a whole industrial complex there. There are industries and companies making glass, uh, different products on the moon, but at the, the same time, the colony still needs to import import different uh, materials from Earth. In your research in doing all of this, did you find there are certain things that are made more efficiently on the moon than you could do on Earth? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, the the main thing is if you can make it or manufacture it on the moon at all, it's generally best because that way you don't need to ship it from Earth. So in terms of uh, simple materials, now I'm not talking about things like complex electronics because, you know, it takes an entire industrial base to be able to do things like turn silicon into, you know, CPUs. Mm -hmm. But aluminum is far better to manufacture locally. Glass is also far better because, remember I mentioned anorthite, it also gives you silicon is another one of those elements, and you mix the silicon with the oxygen and you have glass. So you can make as much glass as you want. Um, calcium, believe it or not, has a lot of uh, uses. We, most people think of calcium as being basically chalk, um, but in its pure form, it's a metal, and it's actually far, it's an even better conductor than copper. So you can make wire out of uh, calcium, uh, you know, metallic calcium. Now, the reason we don't do that on Earth is because it oxidizes very quickly. Uh, so in the presence of oxygen, and especially in the presence of water, it'll just effectively rust. Uh, that's not a problem if you're running uh, power lines along the lunar surface. So there, there's a lot of these, uh, a lot of these mm. things that you can do locally. And, of course, anything that's craft or artisan-based, since you have a population of 2,000 people living there, you have the, you have the, the workers, uh, the, the trade craftsmen and women who can do it for you on site. Rather along than with all the graft that goes along with, <laughs> with that you import from Along with also. all the graft. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. This is, this, is not, uh, this is not some utopian society. Humans are humans, and the same emergent behavior will happen in a city on the moon as it would you know, in any other city. Yeah, talking with Andy Weir, author of the new book Artemis, and we've been talking about how to engineer a lunar city. But for humans to one day survive on the moon, we'll need a way to treat any serious medical issues that could arise while in uh, microgravity. And there are efforts underway to study what it would take to perform certain types of surgery in space. And joining us now to talk about this is my guest, George Pantelos, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the University of uh, Louisville. Uh, welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Pantelos. Good afternoon, Ira. After oh. listening to your program for many years, it's a treat to join you and your listeners. Wow, uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, so let's get right into surgery. If we needed to perform space surgery tomorrow, what would we be able to do? I mean, I mean saying, what, what can we do at this point in time? What we can do at this time would be very uh, simple things like closing uh, some injury to the skin. Uh, beyond that, there, there isn't any surgical capabilities, but we're looking ahead 
10 to 15 years from now when we'll have crews going to the moon, possibly establishing an initial lunar colony, so something very different than the city that Andy describes in his book. So you would have to train physicians or at least people capable of doing some sort of rudimentary surgery. That's that's correct. In fact, uh, we have two different projects, one with the NASA Flight Opportunities Program, one with the new NASA Translational Research Institute for Space Health, where we're looking at both the, the technology and the gizmos that will need to do that, as well as what do you do to train a crew medical officer who might be a physician but may not be a surgeon, uh, on how to do at least basic surgical tasks to treat a problem that might arise. Um, is it possible for a robot, a dexterous robot, that would be on a mission like that to actually serve as a medical surgical assistant because you have so many crew, uh, so few crew members on your spacecraft to begin with? And since some conditions don't need to be addressed immediately, uh, could you potentially launch with fewer surgical instruments, and then if the need arises, use the 3D printer that would be part of your mm. spacecraft to, to print some of the surgical instruments and other, other supplies that you would need when you need it? Uh, let's talk about how the moon's microgravity might affect what you can do. Is it a helpful or hurtful? Let's put it this way. You have to pay attention to it. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time working in zero gravity, lunar gravity, and Martian gravity. And from my experience, I've adopted the saying that a little gravity goes a long way. Um, so you don't have to worry about things floating away from you when you're on the moon like you do when you're in Earth orbit or on your way to Mars. But you still have to pay attention to the fact that there is one-sixth gravity. So, for example... If you're setting up uh, an IV fluid infusion on the Earth, you count on the hydrostatic pressure or the 1G acceleration to move that fluid through the line at the rate that you need. In fact, you usually have a little dial on it to reduce the flow rate so it doesn't go too fast. If you did the same thing on the moon with 1-6 gravity to drive the fluid flow, it's not going to go nearly as fast. So you may actually have to anticipate the need to pressurize that bag of intravenous fluid in order to get enough fluid into your patient. It's interesting. Do we have enough experience from all the space, uh, you know, in, in the International Space Station, all the missions we've had in zero gravity or microgravity to know how, for example, uh, infections might spread differently in the body or, you know, people might catch things from one another? Th that actually is an active topic for research done by a group of researchers that looks at immunology and, and infectious disease spreading. And it's complicated partly because you're in an enclosed environment, although they, they have a very good um, air cleaning system on board the space station and they would on a future spacecraft. But the other thing is, is that the, the immune response system after prolonged experience to weightlessness may change and it may not be as efficient as it is for those of us that live in a, in a constant 1G environment. So that's that's one of the many research issues that NASA is looking at right now. Mm -hmm. Andy, did you imagine what it would be like to have a hospital or an operating room or, or, or medical people in Artemis? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have, uh, it, it comes up uh, kind of toward the end of the book. And um, really, my approach was this in, in that, um, 
Ar- Artemis is, of course, it has this whole infrastructure. So they have a, you know, fully trained medical professionals there. But ultimately, if you have a serious problem that needs to be addressed by more advanced medicine, you, you have to go back to Earth. Um, so really, Artemis's uh, m- medical capabilities are, are limited to dealing with emergencies and uh, dealing with long-term medical care. But uh, other than that, just making sure that you can be kept stable and uh, safe for the, for the comparatively short trip back to Earth, which is seven days. Yeah, and, and Andy, you, you bring up a key point there. Right now, if a critical problem came up on the space station, the crew member could be stabilized and at a hospital on the ground in six hours. But on the moon, it's at least three days away, and if you're halfway to Mars, it's four months away. And so because of that extra time is why we're looking at what additional advanced healthcare capabilities do we need to consider providing for an exploration situation. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking with Andy Weir, author of Artemis, and uh, George Pantelis, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery, University of Louisville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so where do you see this going, Doctor? Do you, are we making progress? Is there any w- one area that you'd like to see more progress made than another? There, there are many different groups around the United States that are looking at that. In fact, we had a symposium a couple of years ago to, to look at what, what capabilities do we have now and how could those capabilities be advanced to something that we, that we need in the future. Um, and, and there certainly is a lot being done. One of the, the challenges that any consideration for spaceflight has to, to consider is how much does it weigh, how much power does it take, how much learning does it take to use it, um, how much resources is it going to consume in the process, because all of those things, you have to try to keep them at a minimum. So, for example, uh, again, getting back to the concept of using a robot as an assistant, chances are there will be a robot on Mm. an exploration mission to perform several different tasks. So it's a matter of having the uh, the robot program so that, that they can switch from helping out with geologic exploration to helping out with an emergency appendectomy and, and everything in between. So you, you maximize the amount of multitasking, all of your uh, equipment and all your supplies and all of your crew members can have because you do have such limited mm-hmm. resources in such a limited space. Andy, now that you've, uh, you've gone to Mars, you've gone to the moon, uh, where are you going to next? Um, actually, I just want to stay on the moon for a little bit. Is um, that right? I would like to write, yeah, I'd like to write a bunch of stories that all take place in Artemis. I feel like I've got a, a pretty solid and interesting setting here, and I'd like it to be my personal sandbox for fictional stories. Not necessarily the same characters being focused on, but uh, a, a shared setting among several novels. But kind of, I'm gonna hold off a bit. The book just came out a few days ago, so I'm gonna I'm gonna see what the general response to Artemis is before I start pouring a bunch of effort into <laughs> into sequels. <laughs> do we have a Do we have a movie Seems to be contract doing well. yet? <laughs> Any movie? Uh, well, we do actually. Uh, we we the, uh, Fox 20th Century Fox has already bought the film rights, and they have attached the directing duo of uh, uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord t- to direct, and uh, they're working on. Um, picking a screenplay writer to do the adaptation right now. So that's kind of where that sits. 
We were trying to figure out who to have as the female lead. We were in the office. That's to, a tough call. Yeah, because she's she's yeah, very that, central to the book. She is obviously, um, and the kind of prevailing opinion from what I kind of you, you got to bear in mind as as the writer of a book, you're just an excited observer peeking in through the windows of the film industry. You're not you have no say, you have no authority. But um, uh, it seems to me that they are they are very very uh, dedicated to the concept of actually getting someone who's like ethnically right. Uh, they 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 want to get someone who is at least the correct complexion to be a Saudi woman. Um, uh, however, also Jazz is fairly young. Jazz is the main character. She's fairly young. She's in her early mid twenties, and so they may they may end up do, saying, "Well, we're going to have to discover someone," and mm. then to get the star appeal necessary to get a movie greenlighted, then then maybe they would the other characters might be big names. But uh, but they're firm on not uh, they're 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 firm on 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 the ethnicities. Well, your your character certainly has an attitude, if I might put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> that uh, that your character your characters in the Martian did not have. So that will be a challenge to find it. Thank you, thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. Good good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Andy, we're author of, uh, of The Martian and now uh, the new book, Artemis, and also George Pantelis, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the University of Louisville. We're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, bird brain doesn't have to mean stupid. No, because if you look at the brainy antics of the crow, wow, all, crows are pretty smart. If you have them in your backyard, if you watch them, you know how smart they are. Uh, plus, what killed the passenger pigeon? There are new clues, which we will divulge if you stay with us after the break. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. My hour, my hour, my guest this hour is Andy Weir. You know him as author of The Martian, and we're talking about his latest book called Artemis. And uh, one of the questions I had in reading your book, and I'm, you know, it's quite obvious that even a hundred years from now, the food hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> no, space. it sure hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why is that? <laughs> well, um, while it is much cheaper uh, in the setting of Artemis to get stuff to the moon, um, it is not un- it is not free, and uh, transporting freight uh, transporting freight to the moon is expensive. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll spare you ten pages of economic analysis and math. It turns out to be about. Uh, $160 in 2015 dollars to put one kilogram onto the surface of the moon. So that means if you want to eat nice, tasty food that was made on Earth, like, you know, steaks or something like that, it's going to end up costing quite a lot of money. So most people in Artemis, bear in mind, it's a tourist-based economy. So Mm -hmm. there's the nice, glitzy hotels and casinos area, and then the more modest and austere uh, places where the the residents who live and work there... uh, are, and they can't afford that sort of thing. So what they end up eating is, uh, well, it's chlorella algae, but they all call it gunk. <laughs> and uh, it, algae is actually really cool in in terms of like potential space nutrition because a lot of it can be grown in a very very small area in a very very quick amount of time, a very small amount of time. So you can have vats that are just basically um, algae farms cranking this stuff out. 
and also based on the inputs that you give it, the amount of light, the frequencies of light, and the nutrients that are in the in the bath to start with, mm-hmm. the algae will either generate more protein or more sugars. So you can really fine tune the nutritional value of it. So it's actually nutritionally extremely good for you, but it tastes awful. And I've had some. <laughs> Um, I was ambushed. Yes, I was ambushed by this. Um, Somebody in in an interview a few days ago, someone said like, oh, well, we brought you some chlorella algae, some dried chlorella algae here. We'll just mix up some water. There's your gunk. Give us a taste. And I can I can tell you uh, it's awful. It's um, it, it tastes like. So you take the taste of seaweed. I don't know if you if you eat sushi, but um, you take the taste of seaweed and and magnify it by about a thousand and then give it an aftertaste that basically never goes away. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's not a great taste. However, also within the within the context of Artemis, um, what you do if you're poor is you is you buy gunk locally, but you also buy imported from Earth extracts, like mm. so flavor extracts that you mix with the gunk to make it taste uh, palatable, although it still doesn't taste that great. Well, I'm glad you, you didn't say it tastes like chicken or else we'd be... We'd be done here. Let's go to the phones. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the phones now. Let's let's go to uh, Kate in New Smyrna, Florida. Hi, Kate. Hi. Hi there. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Go ahead. I'm really excited to hear this on my way home from work. I'm a writer here in Florida. And my father, Jim Davis, was one of the um, first American rocket scientists in Huntsville and a chief designer on Apollo. Uh, one of the founders of the shuttle program, and I think he would be just thrilled to death with these books. Um, I really enjoyed the Martian. Oh, well, thank you. And he was actually the original steely-eyed missile man. That uh, comes from his uh, experience with the Apollo 13 disaster, and he led the team that uh, designed the filter. And so I'm just thrilled with the book. That's awesome. excited to read this this next one, and I think my father would just love this. Well, thank you, Kate, for calling. Well, thanks. You can't get a better recommendation than that, Andy. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. I love to hear that sort of thing. Let's let, let's talk, let's talk also about the stuff that goes on in the moon. In the, in the book, I mean, you have set up a whole industrial complex there. There are industries and companies making glass, uh, different products on the moon, but at the, the same time, the colony still needs to import import different uh, materials from Earth. In your research in doing all of this, did you find there are certain things that are made more efficiently on the moon than you could do on Earth? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, the the main thing is if you can make it or manufacture it on the moon at all, it's generally best because that way you don't need to ship it from Earth. So in terms of uh, simple materials, now I'm not talking about things like complex electronics because, you know, it takes an entire industrial base to be able to do things like turn silicon into, you know, CPUs. Mm -hmm. But aluminum is far better to manufacture locally. Glass is also far better because, remember, I mentioned anorthite. It also gives you silicon is another one of those elements. And you mix the silicon with the oxygen and you have glass. So you can make as much glass as you want. Um, Calcium, believe it or not, has a lot of uh, uses. Most people think of calcium as being basically chalk. Um, but in its pure form, it's a metal, and it's actually far, it's an even better conductor than copper. So you can make wire out of uh, calcium, uh, you know, metallic calcium. Now, the reason we don't do that on Earth 
is because it oxidizes very quickly. Uh, so in the presence of oxygen, and especially in the presence of water, it'll just effectively rust. Uh, that's not a problem if you're running uh, power lines along the lunar surface. So there, there's a lot of these, uh, a lot of these mm. things that you can do locally. And of course, anything that's craft or artisan-based, since you have a population of 2,000 people living there, you have the, you have the, the workers, uh, the, the trade craftsmen and women who can do it for you on site. Rather along than with all the graft that goes along with, <laughs> with that you import from along with also. all the graft yes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely this is this is not uh, this is not some utopian society humans are humans and the same emergent behavior will happen in a city on the moon as it would you know in any other city yeah talking with Andy Weir author of the new book Artemis and we've been talking about how to engineer a lunar city but for humans to one day survive on the moon we'll need a way to treat any serious medical issues that could arise while in uh, microgravity. And there are efforts underway to study what it would take to perform certain types of surgery in space. And joining us now to talk about this is my guest, George Pantelos, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the University of uh, Louisville. Uh, Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Pantelos. Good afternoon, Ira. After listening to your program for many years, it's a treat to join you and your listeners. Wow, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so let's get right into surgery. If we needed to perform space surgery tomorrow, what would we be able to do? I mean, I mean saying, what, what can we do at this point in time? What we can do at this time would be very uh, simple things like closing uh, some injury to the skin. Uh, beyond that, there, there isn't any surgical capabilities, but we're looking ahead 10 to 15 years from now when we'll have crews going to the moon, possibly establishing an initial lunar colony, so something very different than the city that Andy describes in his book. So you would have to train physicians or at least people capable of doing some sort of rudimentary surgery? That's that's correct. In fact, uh, we have two different projects, one with the NASA Flight Opportunities Program, one with the new NASA Translational Research Institute for Space Health where we're looking at both the the technology and the gizmos that we'll need to do that, as well as what do you do to train a crew medical officer who might be a physician but may not be a surgeon uh, on how to do at least basic surgical tasks to treat a problem that might arise. Um, Is it possible for a robot, a dexterous robot, that would be on a mission like that to actually serve as a medical surgical assistant? because you have so many crew, uh, so few crew members on your spacecraft to begin with. And since some conditions don't need to be addressed immediately, uh, could you potentially launch with fewer surgical instruments, and then if the need arises, use the 3D printer that would be part of your mm. spacecraft to, to print some of the surgical instruments and other, other supplies that you would need when you need it. Let's talk about how the moon's microgravity might affect what you can do. Is it helpful or hurtful? Let's put it this way. You have to pay attention to it. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time working in zero gravity, lunar gravity, and Martian gravity. And from my experience, I've adopted the saying that a little gravity goes a long way. Um, So you don't have to worry about things floating away from you when you're on the moon like you do when you're in Earth orbit or on your way to Mars, but you still have to pay attention to the fact that there is one sixth gravity. So, for example, if you're setting up uh, an IV fluid 
infusion on the Earth, you count on the hydrostatic pressure or the 1G acceleration to move that fluid through the line at, at the rate that you need. In fact, you usually have a little dial on it to reduce the flow rate so it doesn't go too fast. If you did the same thing on the moon with 1-6 gravity to drive the fluid flow, it's not going to go nearly as fast. So you may actually have to anticipate the need to pressurize that bag of intravenous fluid in order to get enough fluid into your patient. Interesting. Do we have enough experience from all the space, uh, you know, in, in the International Space Station, all the missions we've had in zero gravity or microgravity to know how, for example, uh, infections might spread differently in the body or, you know, people might catch things from one another. Th that actually is an active topic for research done by a group of researchers that looks at immunology and, and infectious disease spreading. And it's complicated partly because you're in an enclosed environment, although they, they have a very good um, air cleaning system on board the space station and they would on a future spacecraft. But the other thing is is that the, the immune response system after prolonged experience to weightlessness may change and it may not be as efficient as it is for those of us that live in a, in a constant 1G environment. So that's that's one of the many research issues that NASA is looking at right now. Mm -hmm. Andy, did you imagine what it would be like to have a hospital or an operating room or, or, or medical people in Artemis? Oh yeah, absolutely. We have uh, it. It comes up uh, kind of toward the end of the book, and um, really, my approach was this: in, in that um, our Artemis is, of course, it has this whole infrastructure, so they have a you know fully trained medical professionals there. But ultimately, if you have a serious problem that needs to be addressed by more advanced medicine, you have to go back to Earth. Um, so really, Artemis's uh, medical capabilities are, are limited to dealing with emergencies and uh, dealing with long-term medical care. But uh, other than that, just making sure that you can be kept stable and uh, safe for the, for the comparatively short trip back to Earth, which is seven days. Yeah, and, and Andy, you, you bring up a key point there. Right now, if a critical problem came up on the space station, the crew member could be stabilized and at a hospital on the ground in six hours. But on the moon, it's at least three days away, and if you're halfway to Mars, it's four months away. And so because of that extra time is why we're looking at what additional advanced healthcare capabilities do we need to consider providing for a, a, an exploration situation. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking with Andy Weir, author of Artemis, and uh, George Pantelis, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery, University of Louisville, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so, where do you see this going, Doctor? Do you, are we making progress? Is there any w one area that you'd like to see more progress made than another? There, there are many different groups around the United States that are looking at that. In fact, we had a symposium a couple of years ago to to look at what. What capabilities do we have now, and how could those capabilities be advanced to something that we that we need in the future? Um, and and there certainly is a lot being done. One of the the challenges that any consideration for spaceflight has to to consider is how much does it weigh? How much power does it take? How much learning does it take to use it? Um, 
how much resources is it going to consume in the process because all of those things, you have to try to keep them at a minimum. So, for example, uh, again, getting back to the concept of using a robot as an assistant, chances are there will be a robot on hmm. an exploration mission to perform several different tasks. So it's a matter of having the, program, uh, the robot program so that, that they can switch from helping out with geologic exploration to helping out with an emergency appendectomy and, and everything in between. So you, you maximize the amount of multitasking all of your uh, equipment and all your supplies and all of your crew members can have because you do have such limited resources in such a limited space. Andy, now that you've uh, you've gone to Mars, you've gone to the moon, uh, where are you going to next? Um, actually, I just want to stay on the moon for a little bit. Is um, that right? I would like to write, yeah, I'd like to write a bunch of stories that all take place in Artemis. I feel like I've got a, a pretty solid and interesting setting here, and I'd like it to be my personal sandbox for fictional stories. Not necessarily the same characters being focused on, but uh, a, a shared setting among several novels. But kind of, I'm gonna uh, hold off a bit. The book just came out a few days ago, so I'm gonna I'm gonna see what the general response to Artemis is before I start pouring a bunch of effort into <laughs> into sequels. Do we have a Do we have a movie Seems to be contract doing well. yet? <laughs> Any movie? Uh, well, we do actually. Uh, we we the uh, Fox 20th Century Fox has already bought the film rights, and they have attached the directing duo of uh, uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord t to direct, and uh, they're working on. Um, picking a screenplay writer to do the adaptation right now. So that's kind of where that sits. We were trying to figure out who to have as the female lead we were in the office. That's to... a tough call. Yeah, because she's, she's yeah, very that... central to the book. She is, obviously. Um, and the kind of prevailing opinion from what I kind of, you, you got to bear in mind, as, as the writer of a book, you're just an excited observer peeking in through the windows of the film industry. You're not, you have no say, you have no authority. But, um, uh, it seems to me that they are they are very very uh, dedicated to the concept of actually getting someone who's like ethnically right. Uh, they 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 want to get someone who is at least the correct complexion to be a Saudi woman. Um, uh, however, also Jazz is fairly young. Jazz is the main character. She's fairly young. She's in her early mid twenties, and so they may they may end up saying, "Well, we're going to have to discover someone," and mm. then to get the star appeal necessary to get a movie greenlighted, then, then maybe they would, the other characters might be big names, hmm. but, uh, but they're firm on not, uh, they're, they're, they're firm on, on, on the ethnicities. Well, your, your character certainly has an attitude, if I might put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> that, uh, that your character is, your characters in the Martian did not have. So that will be a challenge to find it. Thank you. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Good, good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Andy, we're author of, uh, of The Martian and now uh, the new book Artemis and also George Pantelos, professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the University of Louisville. We're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, bird brain doesn't have to mean stupid. No, because if you look at the brainy antics of the crow, wow, all, crows are pretty smart. If you have them in your backyard, if you watch them, you know how smart they are. Uh, plus, what killed the passenger pigeon? There are new clues, which we will divulge if you stay with us after the break. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. 
You know, over the years, we've been discovering just how smart crows are. We've seen them build tools. You know, they're pretty smart, but have you ever seen a crow playing games? Yeah, whether it's surfing down a snowy roof, dropping objects from on high and then zooming to catch them, or other kinds of merriment, these are smart birds we're talking about. And they're so smart that one company, Dutch startup called Crowbar, wants to train them to pick up cigarette butts and other litter in exchange for food. But my next guest, herself a big believer in those brainy birds, thinks that, well, might be a step just too far. Kaylee Swift is a Ph.D. candidate in ornithology at the University of Washington in Seattle. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thank you for having me. Crows, they are smarter than the average bird, aren't they? They truly are, yeah. When we look at um, some of the features of their cognition, like you mentioned tool use or causal reasoning, or even if we just look at the relative size of their brain, they're really, really impressive birds. They have facial recognition, don't they? They do, yeah. So we've been able to demonstrate that here at the University of Washington uh, in a variety of studies. One where we looked at whether or not they would remember people who caught them, which is sort of a scary, intense experience for a crow. And we found that not only did the birds that were captured recall the people that that had done that, but they actually spread that information. And we know that they'll remember people that they see doing other kinds of dangerous things, a little bit more nuanced, though, like holding dead crows. They'll remember you holding a dead crow, and do they think you killed it? So that's what we think that they're inferring. Uh, In our experiments, when we demonstrated that, we were careful that the the people holding the dead crows didn't do anything. You know, we weren't playing any kinds of distress calls. They weren't rough handling the crows. So if they did interpret that this person killed it, it was purely by proximity. But that's still really Mm. impressive. So Alfred Hitchcock was right to cast crows in the birds. (laughs) Well, so I always say, you know, I... As a fan of cinema, you can't help but love that movie. However, uh, I know that he really liked these animals, but I think he did them a great disservice in in the birds because gathering in large numbers is a really um, important and common part of this bird's behavioral repertoire. And so... Uh, because of that, because they're they're inclined to get into these large groups, now there's this sort of permanent creepy association with seeing an event yeah. like that. Yeah. We have some photos of your research on our website at sciencefriday.com slash crows. And you have to tell me about the, the masks you use. <laughs> yeah. So in that original facial recognition study pioneered by John Marsliff, you know, what they were interested in looking at is can a wild animal learn and recognize a human face? Uh, And so to ask that question, they wanted to be able, and again, because they were keying in specifically on the face, they wanted to be able to have some flexibility with what size or different kinds of people can we trade faces, so to speak, and will the birds still recognize them? Is that the part that they're keying in on? So so that's why the masks were important in that study. But uh, one of the other elements is, you know, we didn't want to use... Um, for for the bulk of the study, we didn't want to use the kind of exaggerated, really caricature-type masks that you would buy at a typical Halloween store, Mm. both because they're sort of, you know, in in some ways they don't really resemble human face because they're so exaggerated and because they often have facial expressions sort of inherently tied to them. They're looking angry or they're looking extremely happy. So we actually had costume makers come and take molds of volunteers' faces to make these 
expressionless, very plain faces. And the, the outcome of that is that they're effective. They look more like just a normal person. But for that reason, and because they often sort of cast shadows over the eyes a little bit, they come across as extremely creepy to the average human being. They do. <laughs> so they look at us as creepy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and one, one of the things that you do out of your work is, is a Twitter game called Crow or No Crow, which we're going to play on Twitter with you next week. And are there any dead giveaways? So sorry about that language. That some things they crow or not, uh, like say a raven. Yeah. So there are a couple key uh, features, just based on appearance alone, that are really helpful for distinguishing crows from other black corvids, like ravens, or even other black birds. Because not every black bird is is a corvid or related closely to a crow. Uh, the the big one when you're comparing things like crows and ravens is that ravens are substantially larger than crows. I always tell people if you're unfamiliar with these birds and you're out and you see something and you think to yourself, that is the biggest gosh darn crow I've ever seen in my life, you're probably looking at a raven. So there's that size component and detecting that in something like a photo, though, that kind of comes with practice at getting to know proportions and all of that. So the more um, objective features are Hmm. ravens have these special throat feathers called hackles. And they look, they're very textured. It looks like a beard. It looks like a bird with a great big beard. And crows don't have those specialized hackle feathers. They obviously, they have throat feathers, but they don't have that same um, kind of fur-like texture to them. They're much smoother. Uh, And then tail shape is another really good indicator if you're able to see these birds in flight, which is often when we see them. Ravens have a, a diamond-shaped tail, and crows have a square tail. Wow, interesting. Let's see if we can get a phone call or two in here before we have to say goodbye. Let's go to Kevin in Columbia, Missouri. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Ira. Big fan of your show. Thank you for having me on. Um, my question is, um, do we have any evidence that uh, crows, ravens, understand basic arithmetic? Like, can they add, like, 2 plus 1 is equal to 3? Do they, is there any evidence that they understand basic numbers or, or can count? Great question. Yeah, that is a great question. And the answer is kind of. So we have done <laughs> we have done studies on, I believe it was rooks, which are a European uh, corvid, where we, we showed that they have some sense of quantity, of greater quantities, but the way that they understand numbers is not the same way that you and I as human beings understand numbers. So Yes, they can they can do things that sort of the outcome of which is that they're counting, but they're not counting the way that we do. Hmm. How, how can we? I mentioned all the ways that uh, that crows can play. How do we observe crows playing, or at least uh, test their smarts ourselves? Yeah, so so play is a really fascinating area of research, and to to go on and on about that, I would take up the rest of your show. But suffice it to say that you know, for the average person to see playing, it's really just about taking the time to observe animals, right? Just the way that we observe playing in in our pets. The reason we get to see those kinds of behaviors is because we spend a lot of time looking at them and observing them. I think my favorite story of observing play in corvids is in the Seattle area, we have these trees that uh, make these really round cones that they distribute all over the city. They're about the size and shape of a ping pong ball. And I was watching this crow and it, it would grab the cone and it would fly up really high and then it would drop it, but it would fly down and catch it right before it hit the ground. And it would fly back up, 
drop it. So again, it wasn't trying to do anything for the purpose of, you know, cracking open this cone, for example, or or something that we could easily attribute to another thing. To me, it, it sincerely looked like it was just sort of playing with a ball. Wow. Is there any way to know uh, what a baby crow or a young crow looks like? I mean, we see birds all the time and never know adults from the, the young ones. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And there are two really easy ways to tell them apart. The first is that baby crows and ravens and many other corvids have blue eyes uh, that they'll transition to brown as they get a little older. But for the first couple of months after they're out of the nest, they have these bright, striking blue irises. Really pretty. And then the second way is baby birds have what we call um, the agape which you, we can use that word to describe the interior mouths of lots of birds, but when we use hmm. it in context of young crow, of young birds or crows, we're talking about, you know how baby birds have that bit of their bill on the corner, the corners there? It always gives them sort of that crotchety, grumpy look that's iconic to baby birds. So that that's called the gape. And what that allows them to do is open their mouths really, really wide so the parents have lots of space to insert food. Ah. And in crows, that gape is pink. So if you see a bird with blue eyes or pink at the very corner of its mouth, that's a baby crow. Wow. Wow. I got one last question for you. We know how amazing they are using tools, and people have said, why not train them to pick up the trash? Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. So, you know, for me, it's not an issue of a lack of intelligence or trainability. Like you said, we know that crows, specifically speaking, New Caledonian crows, are capable of, of really impressive feats of um, multi-step tool use. So when we ask, you know, is it possible to train wild crows to pick up cigarette butts? I think theoretically it's it's totally possible. They have the cognition to do it. To me, it's a problem of motivation, right? If you could go, if all of the things that you and I work to get money for, we could just find for free on the sidewalk, we'd probably skip the step of earning money. And you can make sort of the same analogy with crows picking up cigarette butts. Why would they take the time to go find cigarette butts to get food if they could just go find food? You mean they're smart enough to make that calculation? I think, you know, I think that cost and effect a lot of animals, that's that's kind of how what it means to be a living being is this constant cost and effect analysis. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have a whole new uh, view about crows. That's I hope so. A lot so. of them in my neighborhood. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Kaylee Swift, Ph.D. candidate in ornithology at the University of Washington in Seattle. And, and you can see pictures of her work on uh, crow funerals, masks and all on our website at sciencefriday.com slash crows. Speaking of birds, the passenger pigeon was another bird that once ruled North America. There were as many as 3 to 5 billion, that's with a B at their peak, 3 to 5 billion. Historical accounts tell stories of flocks so large they blocked the sun for hours at a time. And then hunters with guns showed up, shooting them for food and sport. And by 1914, there was only one left, and she died in the Cincinnati Zoo. So how did this happen to an animal with such a large, stable population? New research looking at passenger pigeon genes might offer a clue. Turns out that their large numbers, a helpful adaptation, might also have left them vulnerable to human hunting. Here to explain more is Beth Shapiro, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's also a co-author on this new research. Welcome to Science Friday. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So what was the original theory behind why the passenger pigeons went extinct so quickly? Oh, I think for a long time we've known that this was pretty much our fault. We were incredibly successful and skilled hunters of passenger pigeons. But a few years ago, a, a study was published that suggested that their populations actually fluctuated quite considerably over time, and that this might have meant that they were already on a decline when humans turned up and started shooting them. And we found that this is, in fact, not true, that their populations had been extremely large and stable for at least the last uh, t several tens of thousands of years, even during the last ice age. Wow. This is Science Friday from <clears throat> PRI Public Radio International, talking about <laughs> the disappearance of the pigeons. So, so and now we know that, that it was because of why. What, what did them in? Yeah, well, it was definitely us. We were doing some crazy industrial-scale murder of these animals. Um, their populations were large and stable, and this meant that they were able to adapt really, uh, really efficiently and really quickly to living in these large populations. But we came in there, and over the course of just several decades, we took them from billions of individuals to really rather few. And I've always been curious why smaller populations of these birds hadn't survived in some refugial forest stand somewhere, but it seems that maybe because they were so big for such a long time, they just became incredibly well adapted to living in these large populations. Had our hunting been less efficient, had we killed them more slowly, perhaps they would have had chance to adapt to this new surrounding, this new situation of being in tiny populations. Well, but well let's talk about didn't. Yeah, well, they said there's no reason why they could not have survived in small colonies away from the hunters. Yeah, well, what we think um, is that because they were so so strikingly well adapted to living in large populations. This would be things like, you know, if you live in a large population, you probably don't have to work so hard to find a mate, or you don't have to worry so much about predation or about finding food or thinking about where the next giant forest stand full of, full of nuts might be. But once you're in a very small population, this is all of a sudden something you have to be quite good at. And if that ability had been lost over the course of tens of thousands of years of living in large populations, it would have been tough for them to survive as a tiny population. Hmm. How could a bird uh, that numerous, you know, I just, just, I'm just keep asking because it's kind of it's hard <laughs> to understand. Are, are there contemporary species that uh, that these lessons might also apply to? That we're going to lose them yeah. if we keep hunting them. I certainly think that this is something that we should think about that comes out of these these types of analyses. And, and I'm often asked this. I mean, we work on species that are extinct. Why not focus on things that are alive? But I think there are things that we can learn from the past that we can then apply to making more informed decisions today. And I think what the passenger pigeon story tells us is that we often think of things that are in large populations as being not particularly vulnerable to extinction, but perhaps that's not true. And perhaps when we're thinking about whether a species is in danger of becoming extinct, we really need to think more holistically and start to consider the entire history of adaptation of that species. I don't know if there are any species alive today that are particularly vulnerable because of this, but something that comes to mind to me are fisheries, for example. Mm. Um, we know that fisheries have been very large. They tend to be large populations that are connected to each other. And when we think about restoring them, we often don't think about restoring them to these formerly enormous populations, but somehow uh, being able to achieve smaller yeah. populations, potentially even isolated populations. But this may not be what these species really need to be able to uh, come back.
One, one quick last question, because whenever we talk about lost species, we talk about woolly mammoths and things like that. <laughs> People want to get the DNA, right, and bring them back. Would that be possible with right. a passenger pigeon? Well, there's a, there's a lot more to talk about if we want to talk about resurrecting passenger <laughs> pigeons. There are, there are many, many technical hurdles that are still in the way there. We do have the genome sequence now, and we have a genome sequence from the closest living relative, which is the band-tailed pigeon. But we still don't really know how to do genome editing and engineering in birds. And that's because mm. we can't clone birds, much like we can clone mammals like Dolly the sheep. This is not yet something oh. that we can do with birds. This is a whole but other conversation. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to hold it for another time. This, this is fascinating. I didn't know that. didn't realize that. I'm going to have to well, say goodbye because we, we, we run out of time. Talk about it another time. We, we will. <laughs> well, Dr. Shapiro, thank you for taking time to be with us today. Beth Shapiro, professor of thank ecology. You and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California at Santa Cruz. One last thing before we go, the Leonid Meteor Showers peaks this weekend. If you want to see them, get out there tonight, wishing you, uh, and tomorrow night, I think, too, wishing you clear skies tonight and tomorrow. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music, and we had help today from all the folks here at Louisville Public Media, WFPL, and Michael Scholar and his whole crowd here. Thank you all for your hospitality. If you missed any part of our program, you want to hear it again, subscribe to our podcast. And we're everywhere these days. Amazon Echo, Google Home. Every day now is Science Friday, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Plato in Louisville. <laughs>